I always heard about like the the bush parties, like the doof parties. Oh, you, uh, you got to pronounce that word right. It's doof. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone doof. in America says doof. Do, do uh, how do you say it? Doof. Duff. Doof. Duff. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's like a ooh, ooh, like oof. Oof. Doof. <laughs> Welcome to the Mr. Bill Podcast. I'm Bill's manager, Anand Harsh, editor-in-chief of the Unst.com and official intro specialist. Today's episode is what it's all about. Two nerdy nerds nerding out on nerdy shit. We've got two educators squaring off in this episode featuring Chris Ahi Adams. His recent releases include the Spellbound album on Gravitas, his Deviant single on Play Me Records, and coming soon his collab with one of my favorite Canadian acts on one of the biggest UK labels in the bass world. Chris also makes these really fun and engaging tutorials that have made him a favorite amongst producers in our corner of the industry. A special thanks to all the patrons who keep us going. Subscribers to the Mr. Bill Patreon get episodes a full week before listeners to the free feed, and early access is available to listeners at all subscription levels. Patrons can also get bonus episodes, merch, Discord roles, and so much more. Just head over to patreon.com slash Tunes to support the show. Finally, go to MrBillsTunes.com to sign up as a hardcore Abletoneer. You get full access to Bill's project files and tutorials, as well as sample packs and other cool shit. All right, here's Bill's episode with Ahi. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're 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 listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. all right i'm also recording um cool uh how's, awesome how's it going man thanks for thanks for coming on the podcast yeah thanks for having me on uh i've been a i've been a fan you know you're sort of turning into like the uh the my go-to podcast when i'm uh doing some gardening oh nice what kind of gardening do you do uh well my girlfriend she uh started like a vegetable garden and a medicinal herb garden Mm-hmm. I, I just moved out of LA. Uh, well, I moved to LA and then out of LA real quick, all within this fucking like quarantine business. So yeah, we're we're living on a farm out here, so we got a lot of land and, um, yeah, we've been growing like squash and uh, cucumbers and uh, some other herbs and uh, spices and whatnot. Damn, that's sick. Yeah, I've never. Um, actually, I've, I think I've grown some vegetables when I was younger, but it's not a thing I've really done a lot of. Um, but it seems like a thing that's probably like pretty deeply fulfilling, right? Well, uh, definitely like watering them is like, you know, I, I'm no expert whatsoever. I'm just like, I turn on the water and I water it, you know, and it's just sort of like a a, a break from my routine of like just being so deep into computer stuff. Yeah, it's, it's always nice to have these like other things that don't revolve around the computer. I, I don't have enough of them for sure. 
Yeah, yeah. I've been doing a lot of that and then just a lot of biking as well lately. Huh, like mountain biking? Uh, just like, uh, by, I don't know, here in, in Ojai, it's like, uh, it's got a little hills, but like not crazy hills like San Francisco. Like, that's where you are, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I can just sort of go on some bike trails around here and, you know, there's really pretty mountains and and some gardens I can bike by. So, yeah, I just do that, get away from the computer, get my cardio up. And yeah, it's sort of like a, a break away from my half robot self, you know, mm-hmm. right. definitely. I, I don't know. Do you feel like as a producer, like, like, I don't know, Elon Musk sort of talks about how uh, our, our computers and phones are sort of like already the starts of our integration with artificial intelligence yeah i've thought that for a while but um definitely the way that elon talks about it is interesting where he kind of just thinks we're already cyborgs but with just a shitty bandwidth between us and yeah. the technology. <laughs> totally yeah it, I, i've definitely thought about that a lot and uh you know i i feel like you know practicing for inside the computer for so long for like i don't know like 20 years or something like that i think i don't know uh, yeah, I guess over 20 years now, since I was 11, you know, I definitely feel like I'm part robot in a sense. Mm. Yeah, and I so feel I like- Do you also feel that when you get in a car, it's kind of like you're a, it's not that different from like if the car was a part of you, right? Oh, I could see that. I haven't honestly thought about that before though, just because, I don't know, I'm not a super into cars, but uh yeah, I could see, you know, using that as an extension of ourselves, you know. Yeah, I kind uh, of see it the same way as a phone or a computer. It's like it is an extension of yourself, but just like one that you maybe not permanently attached to or whatever. Although, yeah. I mean, some people probably are permanently attached to their phones at this point. Yeah. Oh, I just realized maybe people just think I'm like a, a gardener robot right now. Should oh, we introduce? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We probably should. Um, <laughs> yeah. Do you want to do you want to explain like what what you do and stuff like that? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, my name's Ahi, and uh, my real name's Chris. Uh, and yeah, I make been making music. Bass. I make a lot of bass music now, and I do like online tutorials and on my YouTube channel, and uh, sell sample packs on Splice and. That whole thing. We actually we're, we have a very similar uh, output. It seems like right, like we do all the same sort of things. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah, uh, I think it's almost necessary at this point as an artist to to make a living. Right? It's like you can't. It's it's super hard, and there's few and far between. I think of artists um, who are just able to make a living. Uh, with music streams and sales and shows, it almost seems like you have to do a little bit of this extra stuff to, um, to make, uh, make everything work like, you know, sample packs and tutorials and that kind of stuff. Yeah. I'm honestly so grateful that I got into it because like, yeah, it's like giving me the financial freedom to actually like focus on my art, you know? And, and I, I was listening to your conversation with KJ just about like we both sort of started in IDM, you know, kinds of inspirations, but then like got into dubstep 
and it's like almost like i don't know uh it, it, yeah like you were saying it's like almost like a job in a way but it's like a job that i really like you know yeah i feel like a lot of people get into more of like a genre right like bass music or something like that um yeah. because it is really tough to be a an experimental artist and sort of get no no love for what you're doing even though it's like maybe really technically apt and interesting yeah to other producers but i mean you got to remember that like to make a career out of this stuff you i mean you can just market to other producers in the way of like educational content and music technology stuff like if you maybe get into software development or something like that but um if you want to actually make music <clears throat> it seems like you kind of have to adhere to these genres that a lot of people seem to be into at the time which sucks because i mean i've always like been a proponent of the idea of like you know don't bandwagon jump and just do what's like truly right special to you and all of that kind of stuff but it there has to be a balance and and neither thing i think is mutually exclusive like i think you can do bass music if you're an idm artist at heart and then just make idm for yourself in your spare time or something like that but at some point like to make a career out of music it does get a little job like for sure yeah, but but honestly, you know, I don't I don't really think about it too much like that. I just thought that was sort of an interesting perspective too just cuz like I honestly like my actual tastes in music is so variety and wide. I feel like almost we're at a point in the world where it's like okay to have such a wide variety of interests. You know what I mean? Like th though I still understand that like for like the big artists, it's like, like Dead Mouse, you know, he is able to like produce all these different things. Like I really like his IDM, me like weirder, like trip hoppy beats. But then like he's, if I was to like talk about him to like any normal person, it he'd be like, oh yeah, he makes house like electro house, you know. Um, but that's just because I mean, if you look through his discography, he has like hundreds of tunes released. But like the the top ten big ones or whatever are all house tunes. Yeah. So you know, I I feel like he. I thought that was sort of a cool example of somebody that's like able to just do whatever he wants musically, you know. But like understands how how to actually like you know make a living out of it really well. Mm, yeah, for sure. I mean, he's also done a sample pack on Splice though. Yeah, he's done the the chi chimera one or whatever it's called. Yeah, it's like a bunch uh, of MIDI clips and kick drums, and he's also done um that masterclass thing for masterclass.com. But but he was big and successful and all of that before all of that. But also he's he's a really clever businessman. Like um, I spent a night with him at his house once, and he kind of like told me about all these other endeavors that he's doing that I had no idea he did. Um, like for instance, his cube, like all of those LED walls and all of that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like he owns all of those, right? Like he he doesn't rent them. Oh wow! Um, which means when he's not touring, he rents them out to other people. So he also runs like a. Oh damn, like that's a, smart. Yeah, he runs like an uh, I don't know what you call it, like a LED wall rental company. Yeah, like um, a, a production <laughs> company, you know that yeah has like rental <clears throat> things, like yeah. That's yeah, awesome. exactly. So he does a lot of stuff like that too. He's like very, very entrepreneurial and very clever in terms of how he does business. And also another thing he told me, and I don't know how true this is, is that um he didn't really like make all of his money from music. He, he I think he made, you know, what his first million dollars from music or whatever, but he said he made most of his money from stocks. So like investing. Huh? Well, that's like that. that's smart. Yeah. 
reinvesting uh, your, your money into into that. That's awesome. I mean, that's like that's something I'm trying to learn right now. Honestly, mm. I feel like I have a lot of catching up to do. Oh uh, yeah, I mean. I feel like all that that kind of stuff it's not designed for you to do yourself right like it's if you want to be a professional at music it's also very hard i think to be a professional at economics and investing as well yeah it's like we can only have so much time in life you know and where do you want to put that focus because like yeah you could make a bunch of money but is that like really going to make you happier or or if you can make like a decent amount of money and then spend more time on things that actually like you know, make you happy, you know, I think finding that balance, you know, it's sort of different for everyone. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. A lot of people think that having a lot, a lot of money will make them happy or whatever. And to some degree, I mean, it can, because obviously having no money fucking sucks. Yeah. I've been Um, there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think we all probably have (laughs) at some point. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, I think that becomes a point, right? Where like the amount of money you have versus your happiness sort of reaches like diminishing returns. Like for instance, um, you know, like having a really nice house and a really nice car and like being able to travel wherever you want and all of that kind of stuff. That sounds great, but you probably only need to be earning like, you know, a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year to do all of that. And then you yeah. probably pretty happy at that point, I would say. But then it's like, if you're earning a couple of hundred thousand million dollars a year like does your happiness really go up like by a thousand times or are you kind of just uh, i don't i don't see zuckerberg smiling that much so right yeah or jeff bezos or whatever yeah they they got that sort of like i don't know i I, i'm not around them enough to really uh get say anything so right or like donald trump he doesn't seem super happy right like oh yeah he's got all sorts of problems to deal with (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) Man, he's insane. His followers are insane too. I found this uh, hilarious tweet the other day of um, somebody was tweeting like if somebody, if, if a company made a MAGA mask, well, I think the person was tweeting like two Donald Trump fans, if somebody made a MAGA mask, would you wear it? And, and one of the followers wrote back like, no way, I would never wear a mask for any reason. Yeah. Um, and, and then Donald Trump posted a picture of himself wearing a mask and the exact same follower tweeted on that photo saying like, oh, coolest mask ever. Where can I get one? <laughs> yeah. The thing, though, I, I'm sort of starting to realize about the Internet is that it it sort of shows you the most extreme versions of like what you're either afraid of or like what makes you angry, you know? Um, Like just like from talking to people in real life versus like what I observe on the internet, it's like, it's pretty different things. Right. Those are gone. Yeah, and I, I just like I always have to keep reminding myself like, yeah, those people are there, but like it's like a snapshot in time, you know, of like a person versus like the the true dynamics of like how a human being is, like if you were to converse with them, like they might be able to change their mind. I just I just don't feel like talking online like with text, you know, like cuz like voice thing is pretty cool. You know, because like we can understand tone and inflection and... And it, uh, it also helps you like humanize the yeah, other person yeah. a little more. I think 
a big part of why people are mean on the internet is because it's very easy to dehumanize whoever's on the other end because it's just an avatar and some text or whatever right like there was um there's been a few things like this one one is um there was this woman who's a performance artist who pretended to be a doll or whatever or pretended to be like basically completely still and not move mm-hmm. um and she had a bunch of tools on like a desk next to her and basically said like you can do whatever you want to me mm. um and there was a bunch of people in the room it was like a performance art piece and you know oh, was, actually i did hear about this yeah yeah and those those stuff on the the table like um you know makeup and like flowers and you know nice stuff and then didn't was, she end up getting like beaten or something like that yeah pretty much so some people at the start were just like you know putting makeup on her and like you know putting flowers in her hand and stuff like that but then yeah towards the end people were like ripping her shirt off so her tits were out and like cutting her and like putting a gun in her hand and putting it at her head and it was apparently like a loaded gun and like like this, oh just God. disgusting shit because they just dehumanized her that much and then yeah. like at the end when she like became a human again and stopped doing the performance art piece and started like looking people in the eyes and stuff everyone was apparently there was like this apparently like huge energy of like shame in the room and stuff like wow. that wow and there that's was, a and, really good art piece right right and there was another one um that happened online too where this guy had um a mechanical paintball gun that was just like on a turret or whatever and people in a chat room could choose if they wanted to to point it at him and shoot him oh my and, god <laughs> and dude people shot the fuck out of this guy for like i want to say it was either like a whole day or a whole week it was like a long time where this dude was just getting piled ah! with fucking paintballs um oh. And that's, yeah, I mean, both of those are like perfect examples of how dehumanizing somebody can just make them so easy to treat like a piece of shit, right? Yeah. Because, um, uh, I mean, you know, like who who in their right mind, there's, there'd be, I mean, surely people on the planet who would shoot you with a paintball gun in real life. But most people, like the majority of people, I would say, if you gave them a paintball gun and you're like, you have the choice to shoot me if you want but you're going to see the, my, my painful reaction and you're going to have to deal with, you know, the re- repercussions of you knowing that you caused that painful action on your end. Um, like most people wouldn't do it, right? But yeah, when you dehumanize someone on the internet like that, it just, I think it becomes a lot easier. Yeah. So yeah, I had to like, you know, cause I've definitely like angrily responded to people on the internet before. I'm sure like that's like a pretty common occurrence now for most people. And I just realized, like, I can't convince anyone necessarily of something online, you know, like in person, like I've had the same conversation online and then with the same person in person. And it it just went over totally different. And it's like, I have to keep on reminding myself that um, the, the inner, like, particularly like things like Facebook, like there are algorithms in place there that are like, trying to influence us to go towards certain behavior, which the ultimate end goal is to get us to use Facebook more, you know, so that way they can get more ad money. But, you know, and so I just had to like step back and realize like, oh, like maybe these things are, these certain ideas are being placed in front of me, like to conjure reaction in me. And like, are these even like my natural thoughts. And if I didn't go on Facebook today, is this what I would have thought about today? You know, or does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So, um, 
definitely Facebook does do this. There's crazy algorithms in Facebook where they can like tell how long your cursor has been in like a certain part of the page and like how fast you're scrolling and stuff like that. And using some of this data, like, you know, how, how long your cursor has been on a certain part of the page can kind of like tell you or tell them whether or not A, you're at the computer or B, you're actually reading something. And I think like how fast you're scrolling can tell them stuff like, you know, how much coffee you've had or like how interesting you're finding content or like just stuff like that. But yeah, the algorithms are like insanely dialed at this point from what I understand. And um, yes, yeah, it's, it's insane. I, I just like, feel what, like taking a break from it because like I, I like to, you know, stay connected with my friends, but like, man, just the the amount of the the amount of like me realizing like oh could i be like not not brainwashed but like could is something out there trying to influence me through this app oh 100 but that's just because like the way that we're using that kind of algorithmic technology at this point is for like you know the gain of companies and stuff like that it's, it's extractive right like they're trying to extract something from us whether it be our attention or our money or something like that but i think honestly um that kind of technology could be used for really good stuff like yeah uh, totally ai stuff online um you know it could it could tell when you're about to get sick or something like that and then just like before you even get sick have medication waiting at your door for you or like send you a notification to not go into work because you'll get other people sick or something mm. or um you know there's like plenty of stuff like that 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 this technology could be used for that would be really good for humanity but it's just i don't know human greed is at the core of it all right so you have these companies just being like oh wow we could extract so much money out or attention or marketing power or whatever out of people so let's like you know, perfect. Let's, let's use it for that. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I, I, I definitely feel like technology is like a, t just a tool. It's like a hammer. You can use a hammer to like build something or you can like smash your hand with it, you know? And right now we're like out there smashing, smashing thumbs. Right. It seems like thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the other thing about the internet is um, one thing I've noticed is that a lot of people on it saying shit are also just not the majority of people, right? Like, the, I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, I think totally. the majority of people don't post their opinions on the internet. Yeah, uh, that's what I've sort of come to realize. That, you know, talking particularly with like older people, a little bit older than me, you know, uh, they they'll go on the internet to like look at stuff, but like they won't, they don't really comment or anything like that <clears throat> right yeah that's another thing to keep in mind i think especially on platforms like youtube or whatever like it's so easy to see on youtube too i have uh you know videos with a hundred thousand views on them and then yeah. there's like you know a hundred comments and it's yeah. like all right so that's you know a very small percentage of yeah. people can we, who can we talk about that because like it's sort of like a thing that i'm i had to sort of go through because like you know my youtube channel went from like I had like 300 followers on my YouTube channel like last year, and now it's a little over 15,000. And so it, it it grew pretty quickly in less than a year. And just just because I, I just wasn't doing anything with it a year ago, and then I started posting tutorials, and I posted that Skrillex tutorial, like breaking down his... Uh, uh, his, yeah, uh, his mix template. Yeah, uh, which, you know, that was sort of like the one that like, triggered a bunch of people to follow me but um 
yeah, just like dealing with other people's comments. Do you like, cause like, I'd say like 99% of the comments I get are like really good. But if I like said something, like if I misspoke something, you know, I'll get a bunch of comments being like, it's actually this. How could you say that? You know, uh, right. I don't know. Do you, do you see that at all? Or do you, do you not read the comments or? Uh, I do, but I just kind of, I don't know. I think I've like built a, a pretty thick skin to it at this point. Cause I've just yeah. been doing YouTube for so long. Yeah. You've been doing it for like a, decade or something yeah about 10 years yeah yeah and I, I think at some point like when you see for instance if i saw a comment like that these days like oh it's not like that it's like this like i wouldn't even it wouldn't even register me as a hater at this point to yeah. me it would just register to me as like oh yeah that's that's a youtube comment <laughs> <laughs> and the, i don't know like i don't i don't look at youtube comments as that um like they don't hold a lot of value to me and they don't hold a lot of value to me in both directions right like yeah. if somebody says like man i love you so much and what you're doing is the coolest shit ever like yes it feels good to read but i it doesn't make me feel as good as like you know my girlfriend telling me she loves me or like my, yeah that's my totally father, true you know telling me he loves me or you know somebody saying that like on a phone call or in in person that they love me if i see it on youtube it's like whatever and it's the same thing as like hate if i see that on youtube I'm, I read it and I'm like, yeah, it's whatever. It's a fucking YouTube comment. So, and then, yeah, I don't feel like you can put too much weight on it. Because also, right, if you post a tune online and it's a finished tune, you're really happy with it. You released it. It gets, I don't know, 50,000 plays or something like that. And then there's one guy in, in the comment section being <laughs> like, oh, I think you should have um, turned your snare down by one decibel. And I think you should have, uh, your sub could be like one decibel louder or whatever. <laughs> it's like, do you? really care about that opinion not really yeah yeah no i've definitely been building up my the thickness of my skin through the process of uploading videos right it's uh, like exposure therapy or whatever yeah is that what uh what's exposure therapy i think like where you're scared of something or when something bothers you that like you um you get exposed to it a bunch to try and numb yourself to it or something i don't know i don't know if it's a real thing but like it, it it makes sense to me, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The more I I see just weird comments, the more I'm just like, okay, I just have to like, yeah, they said that, you know, whatever. I'm I'm I know my intentions over here. Mm -hmm. I just have to like be more I don't know grounded or just like sure of like <clears throat> what I'm actually trying to say versus you know if I misspeak something, you know, it's like that's fine, like this it doesn't define me it's and that's sort of what's weird is that like youtube videos there's like so much content of us like on the internet and it's like a videos like this like frozen uh non-dynamic version of ourselves you know like mm -hmm. where if like it was like during a conversation you could be like oh yeah yeah i, I meant to say this or whatever you know as a thing yeah i mean there's a bit of that i also think that um you can sort of speak in ways which I try to do these days, um, especially on, you know, the podcast is one one thing I do that with and YouTube is another thing that I do that with where when talking, I try not to talk so much in absolute values unless it's clear that something is just like, you know, my subjective opinion or whatever. Yeah. Um, so like on YouTube, for instance, if I'm talking about like EQs or something, I'll, I'll try Like, you know, I'll never, I mean, I think I've maybe said this in early tutorials, but these days I would never say something like, 
um, oh, you should always cut with an EQ and you should never boost with an EQ or something, right? Because like yeah, surely yeah. you're going to have people online who have had the opposite experience where they've been like, well, I boosted with an EQ and it sounded fine. So like actually this is wrong from a creative sound design perspective, even though it may be correct from like an old school analog traditional perspective yeah, or something like that. To- so- totally. Uh, oh, speaking on that, uh, what did you think of that whole like multiple limiter group things. I guess uh, Dylan calls it bus mastering now. Oh, the Skrillex thing? Yeah. Yeah, so I I did mix a few tunes that way. And um, for a while I was like, oh yeah, this is pretty interesting and cool. And just to explain to people what we're talking about, from what I, I gathered from watching your tutorial and, and trying it on a few tunes, it basically seems like you're trying to... Um, create a master within the project so that you can layer more things on top of that master without them also being subjected to the same amount of compression. So to yeah. break that down even further, it's like you would, um, you, you already do this anyway. Most people already do this when they mix down a tune, they, they like have their drums in one bus and then all their basses in another, but let's call them groups. Um, so they have all their drums in one group, basses in another group, synths in another group. And then on all of those groups, you'll sort of have compressors and whatnot already just to tame peaks like at the group level, as well as having compressors on the individual channels to tame peaks at, at that level too. And then on your master channel, you'll sort of compress all of that together. But with the tutorial that you posted, this the Skrillex template one, it seems like there's just an extra level of compression there where it's like you compress at the channel level, then you compress again at the group level and then you send all of those groups to a pseudo master and compress at that level, but then you can layer vocals on top of the track without it being subjected to any of all of that group compression at the same time, and then you sort of master all of that together, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. And and what I sort of like had an intuitive sense that that's what he was doing beforehand because I'd listen to his tracks and I'd be like, God damn, these are so loud, but like they don't, like the lyrics and like certain elements and the songs don't feel like they've been shoved through an OTT or, you know, like just like super compressed. Uh, so I was always wondering like how that actually like was phys- physically possible. And then uh, I actually got to talk with a few people that did collabs with him. And then um, I got the idea from that. And then when he actually posted the video, I sort of knew what to look for. Right. And, uh, and lo and behold, it was there. Yeah, I mean, so I, like I said, tried it with a few tracks. Um, the few tracks I tried it on never got released because, well, for, for various reasons. But um, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I definitely was able to get the tracks really loud. Yeah. Uh, which, which was cool. But I don't know, man. I, I kind of thought it sounded like a little too compressed for my liking. There was, there was like a lot, the reason it was louder is because, yes, there was like more levels at which to put compressors. Yeah. Um, and therefore there was less peaks and stuff like that but the resulting factor of having like not no peaks and being able to increase the overall volume of of um, the track kind of just had this like too sausaged of a thing for me and I don't know I, I maybe just went a little too overboard with it but even like trying to dial it a lot I don't know I, I just I, I, I only tried it with like two or three tracks I could probably dial in my process with it a bit more if I kept doing it but I'm pretty happy with my mix downs in general, I think. Yeah, they sound great. So, and that's the thing with music is that there's like not a correct way to do anything. Yeah, for me, I, I'm pretty happy with my really simple template, which is like 
I sort of just have two groups. One is drums and one is called sidechain. And yeah. then the sidechain group just gets ducked to the drum group pretty much with MIDI sidechaining. And then uh, and then I just maybe do a little bit of processing on the sidechain group and usually not even any processing on the drum group because I like to keep the transients really pure. And then I just uh, slam it all through the master bus with a Pro L2. And um, I can usually get it to like negative five luffs pretty easily while still retaining like a fair bit of, you know, transients and dynamics, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's what's great about Pro. I'll tell you, it's so, so clean. Mm. Yeah. It's just a, I trip out about just how I used to think music sounded clean, you know, maybe like 10 years ago. And then now it's like, oh, it's a whole nother level. But also I feel like people are now starting to like, particularly in the rap world, are trying to like overly distort things and like make that sound that makes it sound like the bass is struggling to come out of the speakers. Right, like it makes, it sounds like the cone is like giving way or whatever. People do that in neuro a lot too with um, noise layering, right? Like they'll, they'll take white noise and layer it on the top of their basses so you get this like kind of sound yeah, to the yeah, bass like and whatnot. like the halftime sound. Yeah, exactly. And I <laughs> I kind of got over that like erosion sound or that Vakoda noise sound. But um, yeah, it's the same idea, right? It, it, it's supposed to be like this sort of phantom speaker is about to break kind of thing. Yeah, like I, I, I think I first noticed it in XX Tentacion, but I think that that necessarily wasn't necessarily like on purpose. You know, like I was always confused, like why his music blew up so much. Have you ever, do you know who I'm talking about? Uh, no, but I was talking to Matt Lang about this on the podcast where he was um, saying he was in a studio and somebody put on a track. Um, I think it was maybe the same guy, XX Tentacion or whatever. And he was like with a bunch of producers. And when they listened to it, they were like, none of us are going to have jobs anymore. Cause like, what's, <laughs> the, what's, what's the point of a mix engineer if like, if you can get a, a song with with a million plays or whatever on it or more like fuck's probably like a hundred million plays or something with this quality then what's the point of needing a mix engineer yeah i've definitely uh had that thought in my head too but it's like um i, I just want to clarify before we go further i haven't actually heard the song so this is not my opinion like <laughs> yeah uh yeah i mean there's like uh and that's sort of the thing is that like there's like songwriting and then there's engineering, you know, and it's like they're they're they can be one in the same. I think Skrillex does like ads of really like he's an artist at engineering as well as songwriting, mm -hmm. uh, at least how I perceive, you know, his tracks. Um, and um, yeah, but like, you know, some other people can just write a really good song and it can be really shitty like mixing quality but i can still really enjoy it yeah i mean i have tracks like that that i love that just sound like when i listen to them now knowing what i know about production and having such a particular refined ear for what i like in in mm. mix downs i i listen to tracks now that i really loved as when i was younger and i think like you know if this did have sl a slightly better mix down i would probably like it more but it's not gonna be the the end of the world for me to listening to it or not listening to it you know like i'll still listen to it and enjoy it um, yeah like a good example is refused uh, they have a song called new noise that i fucking love uh and it sounds like shit <laughs> if you listen to it it's like 
the for its time it was really good um but the mix down is just horrid at this point and like you know a lot of old metal it, it just sounds so bad but i love it you know like early metallica or um you know early tool records uh, stuff like that it just sounds the production on it it sounds really dated but i don't know there's something about that that's charming and you know it wouldn't be recreatable today in the same way um and I, the songwriting in my opinion is just so good and i i think probably there's some sort of nostalgia factor there too where i'm you know i love listening to it because it makes me feel a certain way because i got into that stuff when i was younger like that's another big thing right um one of my ex-managers told me the only thing that he thinks that sells better than sex is nostalgia huh that's um, funny so i think that's a you know got something to do with it too but then with, wouldn't, with wouldn't like synthwave be like way bigger than I mean, it's pretty big, right? I guess so. I mean, yeah, it's like or like low fi music or whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a there's a lot of nostalgic things I think that are kind of getting big. Like, remember the a while ago, like Wave Racer and all that shit was like the biggest stuff for a while, like Future Bass. And and to me, what that rang true of was like, this is just all the early noughties kids uh, getting their R and B Spice Girls fix in electronic ha! music again, you know, because it was like this sort of like R and B vocals, and then these like futury. Well, they called it future chord progressions, but it was really just gospel chord progressions, and yeah. I mean, it sounded to me like like a resurgence of uh, you know all that R and B stuff that was big back in the day, like you know TLC and Beyonce and all that shit. So, are are we gonna see like a resurgence in like eighties melodies? I don't know. I mean, I think we already are, kind of. With, like, Chromio or something? Yeah, uh, or like, there's a bunch. Of, I mean, I hear a bunch of stuff in, you know, like, Ganja White Knight, I feel like, has some big sort of emotional, like, Vangelis-style breakdowns and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I really like their breakdowns. Um, yeah, me too. Yeah, it's, like, very theatrical and, like... Yeah, I also of, like that they have all the uh, visuals that go along with everything. And that, mm-hmm. that that was the thing I also... So, does Dead Mouse he does he make most of his visuals nowadays? He does, man, which is insane. That's so he's, cool. Yeah, he's like one of the hardest. How does he have the time for that? He just fucking doesn't sleep, man. Like, the, the day that I went to his house, we went to bed at, like, 4 a.m. or something. And I woke up at, like, 9 a.m., which is pretty early. I mean, like, I only slept for, like, three yeah. or four hours, I feel like. And he was already... He'd been awake for, like, many hours working. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. He, that- and, I mean, you can see it when he streams, man. Sometimes he'll stream... Or when he... I haven't watched one of his streams for a while because he moved over to Mixer instead of Twitch. Mm. But uh, when he was streaming on Twitch, I would watch sometimes. And, uh, man, he would just stream for like three days straight sometimes, like without sleep. And I don't think he was doing any drugs or anything. I think he was just drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes for like just days in the studio working straight. And I would like go to sleep and wake up like 10 hours later because I would sleep for a long ass time. Yeah. And then go back to the internet and he was just like I opened my tabs again and he's <laughs> still just there streaming <laughs> wow that's amazing yeah i haven't done um i haven't done a a, a, th- a three-day working only on music thing uh i did do a um in college i did a a 16-hour concert where i like played music for 16 hours straight um like not like no no breaks. Jesus, what were you playing? Um, I had like a bunch of different instruments 
uh, around there uh, and also some inventions. Like I went to the school called CalArts, mm -hmm. which is like, um, it's, it's a very artistic school um, that has like a bunch of different like d artistic disciplines like dance, music, theater. Um, and they, it's like really heavily encouraged that they all collaborate. And so one of the instruments I had was a musical trampoline. And, uh, so I'd be jumping on this trampoline and it had these like stretch sensor, a variable stretch sensors. So depending upon how far they stretched, it would allow a different like voltage or current to go through it. And then you could measure that difference and turn it into CC data that I then converted into MIDI data, uh, and uh, then you can apply things, you know, inside Ableton and control Ableton with a trampoline. Damn. And this is, you built this trampoline? Yeah, it was, it was my senior thesis uh, at CalArts uh, with me and a friend of mine. I was actually going to make a musical trampoline company after school, and I'm so glad I didn't. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder how that would have gone. Do you think that anyone? They would have broke all the sensors. They broke so easily. Right. Like yeah, you would have had to do like more engineering work and stuff. Yeah, it's just like it's so easy to break those those sensors, especially you know you get a different weighted person on the same trampoline. It's gonna stretch differently, and yeah, it it would just uh, it would have been a nightmare if I pursued that path. Uh, so I'm I'm sort of glad that I didn't, but. Uh, it was very cool. We got to hook up the so a bunch of people built like various robotic elements for their senior thesis uh, and in this program called Music Technology there. And so yeah, we had, yeah we had like a orchestra of robots like ones that had like solenoids that would like hit drums, uh, other ones that would like spin and play a guitar or launch like a, a mallet and hit like play a xylophone. And so. For our final concert, we like hooked all the robots up together. So I, I hooked up our musical trampoline to the mainframe of this robot orchestra so I could control all the robots from the trampoline. Damn. Yeah, so I actually had a similar experience to that. Uh, I, I went to SAE in Sydney. And my um my master thesis, or not master, it was like a bachelor's degree, but my um my end of year project like at the end of my degree was also a solenoid driven oh cool uh, thing that played a xylophone oh that's awesome yeah it was, it's called mechacado um because it was me and my buddy ryan from electricado who built it we went to college together and stuff and um yeah so if anyone wants to google it mechacado just like avocado but with mecha at the start of it is the the googleable term that will but find it did you all have the solenoids like uh was the xylophone like vertical or horizontal? It was horizontal. Okay. Um, and, and it was actually a mixture of solenoids and servos. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and did you have to like learn some programming to like get the, uh, like, did you control it with like MIDI notes inside Ableton? Yeah. So um, I tried both. Um, one thing I tried was, uh, with the solenoids was using a Max device that I built. And that worked, it was okay. Um, but then I tried another thing uh, with the servos um, using just some some interface that some dude made. 
that basically just took a MIDI input and converted it to voltage. So yeah, I was able to using that just send MIDI out alive into this interface. Oh yeah, and that's that's easy. That, <clears throat> that that sounds really that's awesome. Um, yeah, it saved me a lot of headache trying to like develop a my interface, or develop an interface like that myself. I, I still would have no idea how to do that. Yeah, we had to run some like. I can't even remember at this point. I tried to block it out of my memory. Uh, <laughs> uh, but connecting Ableton to some other language, uh, I think, were we using Chuck? I don't know. That's like a, pro, uh, like a really, really rudimentary programming language. I don't think Chuck mm -hmm. was able to even do that, so I don't know if we did use that. Um, but, uh, yeah, but actually you mentioned Max MSP, so... That was actually my job before I actually started to be able to like fund my life off of music was I was programming Max MSP for this like weird musical invention for like a couple of years. Hmm. Oh, that's awesome. Um, do you still do any programming? Uh, no, I have since blocked all that out of my memory and uh, I am a, a caveman at coding at this point. Uh, but it used to be, you know, my everyday kind of thing. And like I, I'd build these max patches. So this like device I worked on was called the Space Harp. You can actually Google it. It sort of looks like a uh, a stealth fighter jet with a bunch of LEDs in it. Like, you know, that stealth bomber shape of like the triangle wing. And it's all yeah, black. The, the TIE fighters or whatever. Oh, uh, not the TIE, Star Wars TIE fighter. It's like the, the U.S. stealth bomber. Uh, and it's like this like black triangle looking ship. And uh, so that's what the space harp looks like. Uh, if you look up like spaceharp.com or whatever, but it, it's got all these led sensors in it and they're like infrared sensors. So you have like an infrared light above you. And then when you put your hand over the sensor, it both triggers the led light and triggers a MIDI note. And um, yeah, so it's like your shadow that is blocking the infrared connection between the light and the sensor that triggers everything. Right, right. It's like a photosensitive resistor or whatever. Yeah. And then from there, like that would like connect to Ableton and, and a visualizer at the same time. So that way it was like a, uh, what's the term for when you, uh, oh, synesthesia. So it was a, like a synesthetic in instrument uh, that like, basically whenever yeah it would control both lights and sounds from like your your triggering over it and like you could play scales and honestly it was uh it had a lot of issues uh, particularly the how we quantize things like we had to invent our own quantization thing inside of max msp and that was honestly what i spent most of my time doing um was because like we didn't want to hard quantize things uh to every, make everything sound like 16th notes. And so we had to come up with this system that like shifted every note to its like closest thing, but like in real time. And like the Max MSP patch I remember would like, if I had printed it out, it would have filled up like a 10 foot by 10 foot space. It was, it was really crazy. Damn. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot. Did it have a lot of latency? Uh, that was the whole thing is that we had to do it all super low latency, you know, and that's, uh, so yeah, it had a su extremely low latency and he had to get certain things to make that happen too. Um, but yeah, but it was all like, what did, what did we use? We used, uh, 
Yeah, we used a lot of Max MSP, Ableton, and then various like visualization programs, and then also some other programs to like have everything talk together in like that super fast way. Um, uh, it's it's been a while. I stopped working there uh, in like 2016, and that's sort of when like I started to like my career started to actually be able to pay for itself. Um, so I've heard from some programmers before that apparently old code that was written in like, you know, the eighties or whatever, uh, actually runs a lot better than new code because it's all written to run with just way shittier hardware. Huh? Yeah. Uh, I, I've actually made a couple sample packs, uh, based on old like Game Boy and old, like, uh, like the oldest, like electronic computer sounds. And so I watched all these documentaries about like how they made the music for like the earliest video games. And it was actually really sophisticated because they had so little space, like so little memory to actually work with that they had to come up with these really brilliant ways to actually fit everything in there. I've, I've heard of this before. Um, the, I listened to a podcast about this too. The one that I listened to was about the Xbox startup sound. Is that the one you're talking about? Um, I do know what you're talking about. I'm more referring to like the like the very first Mario, you know, or like those really old games like before they had samplers, you know, like that was like an innovation. Like, oh, we can store 128 kilobyte samples. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's crazy that the one that I listened to about the Xbox uh, startup sound, they had to make the sound using like 64 kilobytes of space or whatever because you couldn't put the sound on the um on the hard drive that was booting right because it was a spinny hard drive and you know that obviously had to start before anything could play off it is so that yeah, the technical term spinny yeah yeah you know the hard drives <laughs> with the spinny thing in them <laughs> non non solid engineers state. talking over here <laughs> right right uh, you know what i'm talking about i know exactly what you're talking about uh, so they had to build the sound into the whatever, like the onboard chip that was, I guess, the equivalent of a solid state at the time. But it was so small that they and some of that space had already been taken up by other shit like the the Xbox logo and stuff. So yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they had like such a small amount of space to work with. So it's kind of like you got to store like maybe one really low quality ninety six KB like mp3 sample on there and then the rest had to be done with like onboard synthesizers and stuff like that yeah so i remember the thing that uh sort of retained in my memory from this experience was some of the earlier consoles uh they only had like three oscillators like three slots that they could use for an oscillator at any given time but they were able to sort of create all this different music from it by basically switching out the oscillators at different times. So like the oscillator w one would be like what, a square wave playing a melody. <laughs> oscillator two would be a square wave playing like the bass and oscillator three would be like uh, playing a sampler and playing some other like sawtooth wave or something like that but it'd be switching between the sampler and the sawtooth wave for like a beat or something like that hmm, so it'd be like hocket kind of 
Yeah, it'd be like hopping between these two different options because they couldn't add a fourth, like they couldn't play four notes at a time. (laughs) Yeah, so they had to like trick the third one into like switching between two different like modes of itself. Damn. (laughs) Yeah, I love stuff like that, man. It's, It's really, I mean, really this is like creative limitation, right? And it always forces you to think really innovatively to to have these limitations. And I've done a bit of that through quarantine, actually, like sitting down and being like, all right, I'm going to make a song, but using nothing but you know, these these set of samples or whatever i'm gonna make a mm. song but using nothing but one midi note for the entire song or something like that oh uh like uh those that crazy thing inside of phase plant that rob swire did oh uh, yeah he's done a bunch of those yeah that yeah those are fun to do for sure but i mean anything that's that's got some sort of creative limitation to it is always like i don't know it's really good to get your brain thinking in different ways it's kind of like brian eno's um thing what's it called oblique strategies or whatever but that was designed more i think for bands because it's shit like all right now the singer plays the drums and the drummer plays the guitar and the guitarist is now the singer and like oh it's that know, same idea sort of kind of like it's like band. putting weird limitations on yourself and also putting like weird conditions on yourself that you have to meet and stuff like that and i i, I always feel like it makes my it makes me think in like a a really different way about how I'm working on whatever it is I'm working on. And I usually end up getting some pretty interesting uh, music out of it, but I also end up usually uh, just getting songs actually finished. Mm. Um, and then I also end up usually learning some stuff, you know, cause like if I force myself to do things one way, um, I have to, you know, think of other ways to achieve the same result. Mm, yeah, uh, totally. And, you know, there's been studies, I think, um, there was one that I read about where, uh, this study forced people to find a different way to work for a month. Uh, and then they found that at the end of the month when they said, all right, you can go back to getting to work your old way. Um, most of the people just stuck with the new way that they found, cause they found that it was a better way of getting to work. You know, like say they used to drive to work or they used to walk to work or something like that. And then this study was like, all right, you can't do that anymore. So you need to find a new way to work. So they might have taken like a bus or a train or gotten a lift with a friend or something like that. Oh, Um, yeah. So they sort of stuck with that method of getting to work after the study had finished because they found it was like a more efficient or better way to do it. I feel the same way a little bit with these creative limitations in music. It's like you find a new way to do something. Quite often you find a better way to do it. Yeah, uh, I, that was like my creative limitations was sort of how I started in music was uh, I was only uh, using found sounds, mm. like field recordings that I had made. And for years, like I have like 48 plus albums of material that's like only made using found sounds. Damn, it's a lot. Yeah, I might like... I think I'm at 70 albums right now, like of an hour, hour each, hour oh. of content each or so. And is it all stuff that you're like proud of? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I've sort of shifted myself from like at earlier in my life, I would just like be pouring out content. Um, I wouldn't even post it online. I was just like making, making stuff. And, um, 
and then uh, yeah it wasn't really until i started getting into bass music that i really started to post it online in any significant form and promote it um just because like i don't know i i think something switched on in my brain of like oh i'm not making a living doing any of this like <laughs> i need to make a living uh and and so i just sort of realized i had to actually promote my music i don't know i was a little bit of a space cadet in my earlier years <laughs> yeah i think we all were uh what what do you think you'd be making if there was like no need for a career um, or what do you think you'd be doing if there was no need for a career that's a really hard question uh because like i love what i'm doing now i like honestly really love working on bass music but like you know, because like I, I, I really like listening to some some of it, and um, you know, I just wasn't exposed to it when I was earlier. Like basically, my earlier influence was like metal music, and, and I was like, oh, I love the fast drums in this. And then I heard Aphex Twin, and I was like, these drums are even sicker than metal music. <laughs> and then like I just was like, this is the most advanced music ever. And like that's all I wanted to make was like square pusher venetian snares aphex twin style things but i wanted to do it in my way so i only used found sounds and so like maybe if i w didn't have to make a career i'd still be doing that mm -hmm. yeah nice yeah i find i'm i'm sort of similar <laughs> in that way where uh i had this same experience where when i was younger i was listening to a bunch of um uh, metal and then I found a bunch of like Psytrance and I was, uh, to me, like the, the same experience that you had with Aphex and Square Pusher, I had, but with Psytrance mm. and was just like, well, this is also like tight and well produced and powerful. All the, yeah. All the edits are fucking perfect. And like everything about it just sounds super high tech and like way more technical than metal and like, well, more, uh, better executed than metal and stuff like that. Um, but then after the Psytrance thing, I got into all the same stuff you were talking about, like Aphex and Square Pusher and all of that. That's interesting. You went from Psytrance to to IDM. Well, I liked it for the same reasons, right? Like, I I don't like Psytrance for the... I mean, I liked it a little bit for the trancey element and, and stuff like that. But I more so liked it for the technical aspects of it and, like, how, how perfect it all sounded and how tight it all was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it like... It seems like with Psytrance... Very alien... Though, yeah and, and it seems like with that genre um people just like to you know have put a huge uh focus on just making everything about it like very spot on and perfect you know there's no like weird tails of drums hanging around and like the mix downs are always super dialed and stuff like that which is i think why i could never get into sort of the production style in hip-hop and stuff back in the day because i was just like eh, i don't know like same reason i couldn't get into like grunge and punk rock and all of that stuff it just all sounded to me a little bit like ratty which is weird because some people well not weird but um it's just a very different experience to some other friends of mine right like you know a lot of friends of mine who are into punk music and thrash and grunge and all that stuff it's like they kind of like the exact or they at least at that the formative years of their uh their music taste expeditions and whatnot they kind of liked the polar opposite stuff or they liked some of the same stuff but for very different reasons right like they, people yeah. usually like punk because it's like a uh it's like a fuck you to all the things that other styles of music are doing or um yeah stuff like that but that's kind of how i got into it all
That's so that's so interesting. Yeah, uh, Psytrance. My first ever electronic concert I went to was a Psytrance festival, a Goa Gills, a Goa Gill Psytrance uh, party. Did he play for like three days? Uh, he played for two days straight. Yeah, like so not uh, not sleeping whatsoever. He had a, a treasure chest of LSD hidden behind the stage. Uh, I didn't take any, but like everyone there did, uh, and. Um, yeah, honestly, I was it was sort of annoying at some point cuz like I'd never felt bass before in my life. I had literally never felt bass before. And so like my first exposure to it was like, "Oh my god, it's so loud, I can feel it." <laughs> and like I had never experienced that before. Now I love it, you know, which is so weird just like how exposure to something it's like it so depends upon like because like i was like trying to sleep and like you know half a mile away from or a mile away from the stage and i like it was so loud in my car i couldn't sleep and i'd never experienced that before you know so i think that's where my annoyance came from but like everyone there was so nice and very interesting and like i loved the the culture of it right yeah, it's funny, the Goa Gill things. I've never actually seen him play, but I've heard that when he plays, nobody else plays. It's like he no. just wants to be the only person to play for like two days straight. Yeah. And like, there's no opening act or and, no, no And this guy's like all gray, gray dreadlocks. Like this guy's old, like either in his late 60s like or 70s or something. And like just that's, it's just him there the whole time. And he, he was really good at like reading a... a dance floor to be like if like i tried to walk away at some point another drop would come in and i'd be like re-interested in what was happening and like, it kept on happening i was just like even though like i don't know i just think i do think back to uh did you ever hear the oregon eclipse festival yeah i played there oh you played there cool yeah so you know there was that fame that the psytrance stage is like sort mm -hmm. of infamous there because yeah. like so many people, like they, they parked the Psytrance stage next to the general camping. Mm -hmm. And so like so many pe people's memories, like, and just they'd never heard of Psytrance before, are now camped next to the Psytrance stage for a week straight. Like, yeah, man. <laughs> it's a good thing. I mean, I think anyone into electronic music should understand the Psytrance side of it. Because, I mean, maybe that's just like, egotistical of me to say but I, I really think that it's a very like interesting portion of the electronic music community like you've got the the obvious stuff right like edm and like trap and the hip-hop community and um i'm not even sure yeah i suppose you would consider hip-hop to be a part of the electronic music community right or maybe um, the opposite way maybe electronic is a part of the hip-hop community or whatever uh there there's interplay between the two because there's electronic elements but i feel like you know hip-hop is yeah it's definitely its own thing you know like if you go to spotify <laughs> yeah, yeah you know well regardless like you know you've got like the drum and bass scene you got the you know all these other scenes the house music scene you got yeah. this sort of like live looping instrumentation scene but i don't know for me like the the psytrance scene it's just it's i don't know again maybe i like it because it's nostalgic but um i, I just find it's it's like a weird sort of offshoot of everything and it is so weird that how incredibly popular it is around the world it's massive in israel it's also massive in australia 
Yeah. I always heard about like the, the bush parties, like the doof parties. Oh, you, uh, you got to pronounce that word right. It's doof. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone doof. in America says doof. Do, do, uh, how do you say it? Doof. Duff. Doof. Duff. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's like a ooh, ooh, like oof. Oof. Doof. <laughs> I'm just saying it wrong over and over again. You're like, ah! Uh, you, you'll get it. <laughs> yeah, they call it that because obviously the music goes doof, 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 doof. Yeah, um, exactly. And yeah, man, the, the Australian doof parties are just, they're pretty crazy, man. They have a weird energy to them, at least the ones I was going to back in my day. I think it's gotten a lot more popular since then. But so, so I kind of got into those and then um, after that I started getting into drum and bass warehouse parties and it was essentially just like these UK crews who would take over warehouses in Sydney and just bring these huge sound systems in and then thousands of people would just come in for a night and just squat in these warehouses and almost all the time they'd get shut down by like a like a, raid, a police raid. So, you know, I, I had these private lessons that I was doing uh, last week and one of the, the folks I, I was uh, teaching he's from New Zealand and he was saying you know in New Zealand right now like with the coronavirus it's like pretty much gone there and that they're gonna have festivals again soon and I'm just like is it worth it to like he's like you could travel here and quarantine yourself for two weeks and play a festival have you thought about that because I hear Australia is pretty good too yeah so I think um Australia still has cases. I think New Zealand doesn't have any cases because of this quarantine policy they have. If anybody comes into the country, they have to quarantine for two weeks before going into the country, uh, which is great. I mean, they've completely contained it. Um, I believe there's, they're down to no cases and they may, maybe were the first country to, to be that way. Or maybe, I mean, maybe apart from small islands that never had cases or something, but yeah, I mean, technically you could. I don't know if it would be worth <laughs> going to New Zealand for a, just to play one festival because, you. I mean, I guess you could play a few festivals, but really, like, the festivals in New Zealand in general are, like, probably not as well-paying and probably a lot smaller than the ones you'd play in America. So Yeah, well, yeah, totally. It's just... From a financial I, perspective, it probably doesn't make sense. Yeah, I'm just thinking as, like, a fun thing to do perspective but two weeks is a long time to spend not doing anything um yeah so well, yeah i wonder what the um quarantine uh like what it's like quarantining are they just they just put you in a cell for like two weeks or something? <laughs> uh probably in an airbnb or something like that if i had to guess hmm. uh, they like pay for it and then like you i know in like korea uh like they put you in like a basically you know an apartment and then you have to wear this anklet bracelet thing that like checks on you like like multiple times a day and you have to like report to it how you're feeling multiple times a day damn i mean that's a good idea i mean korea was also another one of the at least south korea yeah it was another one of those countries that also sort of nipped this in the bud pretty quickly right they just had like really crazy testing techniques and good quarantine techniques and they got it controlled really quickly. Yeah. And also I think it had something to do with like, they were actually like producing like the, like s test stuff there. Like I think America's one of its issues was it was having to like get tests from other places because it had exported its like production or something like that or the majority of it. I, I'm not entirely sure to be honest, but um, it, I, I feel like I do remember hearing that somewhere.
but it's just like here in America, it's just like, man, like I just don't know when I, when, when I see festivals coming back, I do see some festivals even happening a month from now. Like uh, my other act Heartworks, we're supposed to play some festival in Kentucky next month, which I'm just like, I don't understand how they're going forward with that. I mean, I think a lot of promoters, they're trying to hang on to the idea that these festivals could happen right up until the last moment and then being like, oh, it can't happen and just canceling it. Yeah, it's just, yeah. Cause <laughs> it's, it's so weird because like I, I went to a, um, that we, we were going, I went to like a, uh, a group of friends for 4th of July and we all like, made sure that we weren't exposed to anybody, you know, it was like a really small group of like eight people. And, uh, I felt super safe there. Like people didn't show up because they were like, yeah, no, we, uh, might've been in contact with someone that got it. So we're not going to show up. And so it was like Mm -hmm. a really responsible group of people and got tested. Um, and, um, and so I felt okay there. Then we were going to go to this other event. It, where near where I live and I show up and I thought it was going to be like another super small group of people, but it was like a hundred people. No one was social distancing. No one was wearing masks. And I just left (laughs) right away. I was like, this is crazy. And, but if what was even crazier is that the amount of anxiety that was caused within me to seeing a party, which I love, you know, it's like our careers and like what we, are, I, I don't know, I really enjoy groups of people and just to have the thing that I love cause so much anxiety was just, it was really, it was a trip, you know? Yeah, I think that's a reasonable response to have at this point. It blows my mind that some people are actually doing shows at the moment. Um, I had Dirt Monkey on the podcast the other day. He's doing a bunch of shows at the moment and we, we talked about it a bit and he has some pretty different views on it to me for sure, but... <laughs> Yeah, I think um, I'm definitely on. I mean, I've made my opinions on this podcast about where I stand on it pretty clear. But just to reiterate them, um, I pretty much think that, uh, you know, we shouldn't go back to doing shows until there's a vaccine or um, something like that. Or the contact tracing thing, because then it goes into like, because like. I understand people or the idea of like not wanting the government to be able to track us everywhere, but it sort of already does with through our phones. But, you know, I understand that there is a a philosophical debate around that uh, topic and it's a very sensitive one. Um, But also it's like I want to get back to actually like living life again. And that is a, a possible, you know. Uh, maybe a, a more safe way to do that. I know that some other countries are doing that. Uh, but yeah, I don't know how it would possibly even work in a country that is so, you know, divided, like just mindset wise. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a pretty messy situation that hopefully gets sorted out eventually. But to be honest, I haven't really been minding the, uh, the quarantine too much. I mean, I, there's been points, especially at the start of it, where I was kind of like very resistant to to it and like wasn't stoked at all. But I feel like the longer I stay in quarantine, the more I'm like, meh, this is fine. Yeah, uh, I feel like I'd, I'd be totally fine in quarantine. Um, 
just because I'm a, I don't know, I, I'm like a, uh, a, I have hermitish, uh, you know, qualities about myself, you know, just staying by myself and working on music for very extended long periods of time. You know, I f that's probably similar to you. Yeah, definitely. Um, for sure. I, I think the stuff that I was having an issue with at the start was more so not being able to see my girlfriend frequently and because uh, we live apart. Mm. And uh, also, I think just like a lot of restaurants being closed. I, I'm a big fan of going to restaurants, obviously. Mm. Um, and there was just a lot of fear mongering going on in the media. So I was a lot more scared than I feel like I needed to be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's it's weird gauging like what the appropriate response is when the, when the information is so varied. Well, the information is changing every day and that's still the case. But I think it's like gotten to a point now where at least I feel like I realize and I think most people realize at this point that you can pretty much avoid this if you're just like somewhat vigilant about it, right? Yeah. And, you know, I just hope that everyone remains as vigilant as they possibly can. Yeah. Watching the uh, uh, actual like like I don't know if they were simulations, but basically, you know, like they would create these like scenarios of like someone sneezing in a closed room and like model like how the droplets moved. Watching those simulations was actually really helpful for me to actually get a grasp on what was physically happening and how it, it could actually physically pass from one person to another. And to me, visualizing those was I was able to like actually gauge how like dangerous or not dangerous something how it was like particularly if I'm like biking outside by myself you know like I'm not seeing anybody or if you bike by somebody and you know that's it's it, it, the air doesn't have enough time to actually like reach you um but if like you're in a closed room like or on an airplane or something like that like I saw some simulation of like someone like coughing without a mask in an airplane and someone happens to walk by them as they're coughing and like the air actually follows the person that's walking and then once they stop it will then spread to the seats of like where they stop and so just like physically visualizing like the fluid dynamics of how things float through the air was actually a really call like it, yeah it just gave me like a sense of like what what's actually happening you know physic physics wise behind this yeah fucking weird stuff hey man i think i'm gonna go get some food and stuff like that okay but, um it was awesome having you on the podcast man i really enjoyed this chat yeah me too man uh i i can i plug something real quick of course yeah yeah um so i have a a uh, album that's going to come out on circus records and we have a single uh, with I have a single with Defunk that's going to come awesome. out on August 25th on Circus. Uh, I, th I think it's going to be called um, uh, Watch Me Blank on This Song. Jesus. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, I Feel It. Cool. With Defunk. Defunk's so good. I love his stuff. 
Sweet. So you just got a bunch of new music coming out. Where can people uh, follow you to get updated on new music? That's yeah, out? so um, you can follow me on uh, Instagram at I am Ahi, and then my YouTube channel uh, where I have all my YouTube tutorials, uh, official Ahi there. And, um, and then also, yeah, I have like Ableton racks and things on there uh, and sample packs on, on Splice. People can check out if you look up, uh, if you just type in ahi into the splice thing i have like 2000 plus results or something crazy like that uh, i just learned um and um yeah lots of new music on the way i'm super stoked on it and yeah thanks for having me on man it, uh, i really enjoyed this chat yeah man of course all right have a good one all right peace man Hey, thanks for listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. These episodes are edited and uploaded twice a week by Robert Fumo of 303podpro.com. You can also support the show, get early access to episodes and hear bonus content by going to patreon.com forward slash Mr. Bill's tunes and becoming a patron. Uh, Please rate and review on iTunes unless you're going to be a little shit about it. And all the links to my various platforms are at mrbillstunes.com. Thank you. (laughs) 